AI system cannot know that something's not fair or that it's based on a biased data set, they just know what they've been given. So there's a huge spectrum in which women's bodies are being problematically represented and that, that's really where my focus is and my concern lies. Welcome to another episode of What Happens Next. I'm Dr. Susan Carland. On this Sliding Doors podcast, we examine the biggest challenges confronting us today, looking at the future we face if we don't change, the future we could have if we do, and how we get the kind of future we all want. This week, we will be looking at the role of bias in artificial intelligence or AI. How do we make sure we remove human prejudice when building AI systems? Our guests are Professor of Communications and Media Studies in the Faculty of Arts at Monash University, Mark Andreevich, and Human-Computer Interaction Scholar, Yolandi Stringers, Dean of IT at Monash, Professor Anne Nicholson, and former Chief Digital Advisor at Microsoft Australia, Rita Arago. I'm Mark Andreevich. Uh, I'm a professor in the School of Media, Film and Journalism here at Monash University. Mark, welcome back. I wondered how you would define AI or artificial intelligence. Oh, that's a, it's, it's quite a vexed question. The, um, many of the things that we describe as AI are probably what I wouldn't think of as AI. They tend to be automated processes that are prescripted. So a machine generates a decision of some kind, but it's not, it's not, really doing anything that we might think of as intelligence. It's crunching through some algorithms and some data and yielding a prescripted output. So it looks like it's generating something that seems like maybe it involves some type of um, uh, contemplation on its part, but it doesn't. Typically, when we describe AI, we're thinking about uh, processes in which the machines engage in forms of um, uh, develop, developing responses that are not prescripted in advance. And very often those are associated with uh, technologies that are called neural nets, um, where you uh, basically you feed in, um, let's say you want to train uh, a system to recognize cats, standard internet example. Um, you supply it with uh, a large database of images of cats, and then you have it, um, uh, basically go through a process of trial and error, figuring out what are the attributes that are in common in these images. Mm. And it's something where the machine, um, through a process that's not prescripted, starts to learn which things work and which things don't. So they call it kind of training, uh, the algorithm that gets closer to what we might think of as, um, as a form of artificial intelligence, more technically, I suppose it would be called machine learning. Um, uh, when you get to the notion of of artificial intelligence in its, I, I suppose, purest abstract sense, it's the ability for um, machines to engage in the type of cognitive activities that we associate with thinking and evaluating and making decisions. And it's still not clear whether um, uh, machines, uh, you know, have, have even approached that level of what we might mean as AI. The closest we can get, I think, is at the moment, although there, there may be some folks who disagree with me, but the closest is this kind of machine learning process where they start to figure things out in ways that we are just not sure what they're doing, mm. but they're able to then, in some cases with a very high degree of accuracy, 
complete the tasks that they're being asked to complete. Um, but still, they're being asked to complete tasks. Uh, you, you know, the the um, as uh, and, you know thinking beings, we tend to imagine that for ourselves, we're able to set ourselves our own tasks. And so the notion of a so-called general artificial intelligence would be uh, in a, a machine that was autonomous enough to be able to set itself its own tasks. Um, and that's something that's uh, uh, still, uh, from my understanding, quite far off in terms of uh, what we might mean by artificial intelligence. So we could think of kind of localized artificial intelligence do this task, figure out how to recognize these images, um, or see how see if you can you know predict the weather based on data more accurately than other forecasting systems. That's a dedicated task that machines can learn how to do given enough data, um, and if there's you know enough regularity for it to detect. But to get a machine to figure out why it might want to know the weather, that's still. Um, uh, a level of intelligence beyond uh, what we think machines are capable of at the moment. Yolandi Stringers is the co-author of the book The Smart Life, Why Siri, Alexa and Other Smart Home Devices Need a Feminist Reboot. Yolandi believes that female voices on our smartphones and networked home devices, such as Google Home, are recreating an old-fashioned feminine stereotype where a little lady can be called upon to help us out. Yolandi, welcome. What do you see as the main problems with artificial intelligence? I think the main problem that I've been focused on is how they represent women women's bodies and femininity in quite a problematic way that, you know, creates issues around sexism, around um, how we think about women and the kinds of roles that they're in um, and and how women uh, behave and look as well. And when I say that, I'm, I'm speaking about devices like digital voice assistants, like social robots, like assistants and chatbots, and also now also Um, virtual reality, and even things like sex robots. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge spectrum in which women's bodies are being problematically represented and that's really where my focus is and my concern lies. You've written a book called The Smart Wife. What do you mean by that term, smart wife? That's right. So Jenny Kennedy and I, uh, with that term, what we really wanted to draw attention to was the number of devices that are coming into our lives that are behaving like or designed to behave like stereotypical 1950s housewives. Mm -hmm. And that might be in the way they sound, it might be in the way they respond to us and the kinds of, you know, uh, in-service kind of personalities that they might have. But it could also be in uh, their personalities, in their form, um, and even in the types of work that they're being brought in to do. So if you think about a lot of feminised AI, it's coming in to do roles that were traditionally considered women's work, things like administrative tasks, housework, um, keeping everyone's to-do schedules on track, you know. So uh, there's a kind of void being filled that, um, you know, has has traditionally fallen to women that has been taken up by these kinds of technologies. Do we see similarly stereotypical masculine or male AI, like AI that has a man's voice in an area that we might be more conditioned to thinking of men as authoritative or common? 
Absolutely. I think there's equally problematic stereotypes on, you know, the masculine side of things. And, you know, sci-fi is a really great place to kind of look for some of these stereotypes. And they certainly translate into the design of technologies. So if you look at kind of masculine stereotypes around men in sci-fi, it's, you know, Terminator and, you know, killer robots and um, very kind of problematic ideals that you definitely wouldn't want to associate with your digital voice assistant. But equally, you know, problematic are the ones around um, the feminine representations of women we see in sci-fi and how they're often uh, in a service role or um, they're, you know, they, they ha- maybe have some kind of reckoning or some kind of awakening through the course of the film, but usually that then at the end is contained, recontained in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's a really nice basis for technology design because, you know, we want something that's familiar, that's contained, that's non-threatening, that allows us to accept these devices into our lives. So it's actually quite a clever tactic or strategy on on um, the part of the technology designers to use femininity as a design strategy. Have the designers ever commented on why all these um, AI assistants have female voices by default? Yeah, so really it's about likability. So know. they've said that? Some of them have. I mean, they have different mm. different kind of ways of explaining it. But, you know, that's my synthesis of what I've kind of seen them say is that it's a way to get more people accepting them into our lives. I mean, ultimately they're to sell products. They're there to get their products, you know, accepted and used and embedded in our lives. And femininity or the femininity they use, which is a very non-threatening form and a very compliant sort of form, is... Um, is a great way of getting everybody to kind of um, get on board. It also is familiar with our stereotypes. So it's not kind of asking anything or it isn't asking too much of the user. You know, it's it's familiar terrain for us. If they went with maybe a more quirky personality or a non-binary gender or, you know, something else, then perhaps that would appeal to a smaller number of people um, or it would be uh, a little bit more threatening or uncomfortable for some users. What's wrong with having AI voices that are female? There's nothing wrong with it per se. I think the issue that we have with it, you know, and the issue we talk about in our book, is that there's one version of femininity that's really on display here. Mm-hmm. And we're now seeing it embedded in, you know, hundreds of millions of devices, you know, across different companies, different platforms, different technologies. So, you know, you look at the big five technology companies, they're all reproducing this particular form of femininity. And like we have so much fantastic diversity in the world, you know, we wouldn't expect to kind of walk around and just engage with one type of woman in our everyday lives or one type of the feminine. Mm. So why would we expect that or why should we accept that of our technology at large? What do you see as the connecting factors between Alexa or Siri, who I might say, what's the weather today? And they answer all the way to the very realistic female sex robots. What do you see as joining all of this together? Well, there's a number of elements. I mean, some of it is that they share similar technology. So the type of technology that's going into developing the voice um, applications for Siri and Alexa and Google Home are also making their way into the voice applications of sex robots. There's also a kind of... um, a personality similarity and not necessarily exactly the same, but certainly that that idea that these devices are there to please us, to mm-hmm. serve us. You know, they're not there to um, to challenge us in any way or to, to um, 
shut down or respond in a maybe more affirmative way if they're treated disrespectfully or in a way that we wouldn't tolerate if we were speaking to another person or, or an actual woman. So that's another kind of um, similarity. What do you think would happen if all the digital um, assistants suddenly had a man's voice or a black man's voice? How do you think we would respond? I think it'd be quite challenging. I mean, I don't think this is kind of an easy terrain. And I think that we have to fall, we have to be careful not to fall into these very kind of stereotypical kind of inverse kind of solutions, which is, oh, we'll just make them all men or we'll just make them all black people or we'll make them all gender neutral, which is another really common strategy. This is is complicated. And it's complicated because the the feminization of these devices isn't just in the voice and the name. It's also, as I said, in the types of tasks that we're handballing across to these devices to do. And in their physical form in some ways as well, uh, in their curves even that, that kind of represent them. So I don't think there's kind of an easy fix. I think more of what is needed is a diversification away from the norm. So not just kind of like here's the one solution that we should go for, but let's experiment with some different forms of and different personalities and uh, let's experiment with what else could be likeable because uh, we don't want to kind of just go with, you know, a, a kind of – stereotypically um, inverse solution like, oh, let's make them all men and then have everyone kind of turn around and go, oh, no, I don't like that. It makes me uncomfortable for some reason. So that's where the experimentation is really necessary to see what else could be possible. Professor Anne Nicholson is the Dean of IT at Monash University. She says that the data sets we feed into AI can produce bias systems. She also sees problems with a lack of regulation. Is there any area where you have some concern about the future of AI or even what we're doing now with AI? Well, one of the problems with these um, learning from massive data sets is they're learning from the past and they're only learning on the data we give it. So if we give it data, for example, that's more from men than women, Mm. we'll learn men as the norm and that's why some... um, health systems might not do as well on uh, diagnosing things for women because they've been trained on data from men. Um, And same things on all the voice and pictures. If there's stereotypes or biases or features in the pictures we're giving them or the speech we're using, that AI system will learn it. They can't make those kind of ethical judgments. We who are training them up have to change the way we put the data in and try and remove those biases so we don't produce a biased AI system. So human biases can inadvertently lead to AI biases. Yep. Um, the, the AI system cannot know that something's not fair or that it, it's based on a biased data set. They just know what they've been given, whereas we can know that. So how do we get around that? Well, we can have a look at the outputs of the system and then test it against um, certain cases where we know what we would expect, say, a human to be predicting. And then we can see if there's systematic differences and then we can drill back down and see where they're coming from. Then we can change the data coming in. We can like not give it more data on men. We can not give it um, pictures of people who've got white skin. We can give it the representative sample of skin and so on. So I think that we can do a lot in how we train them and we can evaluate what's coming out and we can just not deploy them if we're not confident about what they'll do. Are we as humanity um, adequately conservative about our deployment? Uh, 
we're not conservative at all because we just don't have the regulatory frameworks in place to be um, validating what AI systems get deployed. And, and if you think about what we require for, say, engineering, that engineering's been around a long time, you can't just build a bridge unless it meets specifications and it's signed off and people are saying, yep, it's not going to fall down under certain conditions. We have nothing like that for AI systems. Some people build their AI systems really well and test them thoroughly and are aware of um, kind of those boundary cases and so on. And other people just grab the AI software, throw their data at it, and then throw the resultant model in to help make decisions. And they haven't really been um, validated and approved in the way that we might expect. There's no regulation about AI. No, you can just put an AI system up on the internet and make the URL available and... um, there's nothing stopping you. I mean, if, if it was in a certain situation, like someone making medical decisions, the medical decision makers know that they have to be doing best practice and they wouldn't be using it for those kinds of things. But you, someone could put an AI plate for self-diagnosis. And we all know we go and um, do Dr. Google. If you found an <laughs> AI system that you thought was helping diagnose, you're seeing there's, there's no regulation on those. So what are some of the obvious biases we see built into AI systems? Professor Mark Andreevich. There, you know, you can encounter them every day in very common ways. So one of the things that I I've do with classes sometimes is I um, I use Google search. Uh, and you may have seen some of these uh, um, uh, autofill responses to Google search. So, uh, you know, when you're typing a search into the little search box and it, and it makes little suggestions yeah. for you. Um, well, a few years ago, some people did some experiments um, typing in things like um, a woman's place. And then the autofill would be something like is in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Google said, well, you know, th- this is bias in the sense that it's sexist. Um, uh, and you could do the same thing with um, ethni- uh, ethnicity car- uh, categories and you'd get very racist um, yeah. autofill responses. Uh, and, but Google's response was, yeah, it's a bias, but it's not in our system. It's yeah. in your society. Right. And this what- is just because so many people have searched these words. Exactly. Uh, and <clears throat> and so they said all we're doing is reflecting back to you your own biases. But that raises a kind of interesting question. Um, you know, is it what is Google's role in that instance? Is it to reproduce our own biases on some mass scale uh, or is it to do something else? You could imagine um, Google saying, you know what, let's counter these biases in these search terms by, you know, when you start, when you write a woman's place is, have it f- finish, you know, anywhere she wants to be <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, have some type of um, scripted responses that challenge the uh, ingrained biases that Google is reflecting back to us. Now, it was caught in, I think, a little bit of a political jam there because if it did that, it would be accused in some quarters of social engineering. Right. You know, like, who are you to decide, um, you know, what society should be? Right. But the, I think the fiction of that charge is that it's social engineering anyway, right? There's no way out of it. The fact that it's taking data at scale and extracting the biases from it and feeding those biases back to us is also a form of social engineering. Right, So because it's consolidating those biases. It's consolidating and reproducing them. Yeah. So e- either way, Google is, is you know, rep- it's, it's not like if they do one thing, they're social engineering, and if they do another, they're not. So what they did was they punted. That's American expression. (laughs) That's when you decide not to go for the pass, right? But you just kick it up in the air. And they just made it. If you try searching on um, gender and ethnic categories now, autofill won't work. 
That's interesting. Um, and they just said, okay, we're not going to do that. But, it, but you know, you can still find it in other categories that are maybe less obvious. And if you do things like image search, it still works this way. Type in um, CEO, chief executive officer, and do an image search. Uh, you will get more images of white male than are actually represented in the CEO core. It just has that bias built in. So these are very you know, kind of basic fundamental ways in which you see bias. Um, a researcher at Princeton University uh, who's African-American took a list of histor uh, names that are historically associated with African-American and did Google searches on them and found out that they were more likely to get ads um, suggesting that they may have been in, in the criminal justice system or the prison system. She found this out after she was Googling uh, her own name and received these ads. And she thought, oh, I wonder why I'm getting those ads. And so she conducted, conducted this experiment. Um, I, uh, I can give you one more example, which I think is an interesting one. Um, Facebook uh, was found um, to uh, in violation of anti-discrimination laws in the U.S. when it was discovered that you could target advertising to people uh, based on their ethnicity or their gender or their age. Uh, and for some categories of ads, that's in violation of civil rights law. So you're not allowed to target jobs, for example, by ethnicity or housing. Uh, you, know, you know, I want these ads to only go to a certain uh, ethnic group. You're not allowed to target um, jobs by age group. Um, and they were found in violation uh, of civil rights law and had to pay a penalty for that and claimed that they made it impossible now to search on uh, um, on these categories of ads using protected categories of people. But it, it turns out that even if you don't specify a particular, let's say, gender category for your ad on Facebook, their algorithms might end up introducing gender bias into how that ad is distributed because what their algorithms automatically do is they go back and they look at which groups those ads have been most successful with. And if those, if in a particular ad, you don't specify gender bias, let's say you're doing a job ad um, and you don't have, you don't say, I want to target this to men or women or so on. It may, the algorithm itself may discover that similar ads based on graphics or text uh, have been more successful with men or women, and it may build in um, a preference that you didn't uh, install in the first place. So the algorithms itself, based on historical activity, can start to build biases uh, into how information is distributed. Mm. So there's just a few kind of everyday examples, and we could I could keep rattling them off. Uh, you know, things like facial recognition technology. We've heard um, is more likely is is it tends to be uh, more accurate, at least for many of the algorithms rhythms that they've tested um, on uh, lighter colored skin tones. Uh, more accurate um, uh, for men. So there's a kind of you know white male uh, bias in terms of accuracy in many of these algorithms. They claim they're working on that, uh, but it's you know it's a function of the data sets they work with, of the people who uh, create and test these algorithms, and who they imagine they're going to be um, uh, exercised on. So what are the consequences if the issues of bias in AI aren't addressed or regulated properly? Here's your Landy Strangers. Do you think the way we do AI, the way we think about AI, the way we allow it to be produced in our society at the moment, do you think it's good enough? No. <laughs> okay, so then let me take that question further. Imagine we progress down this path in the same way, in the same unsatisfactory way by by what you think. For the, What do we look like in 50 years, in 100 years? 
in terms of the way AI is in our society? Well, I just, to me, that is a an almost impossible question to answer because AI changes every beat. You know, in the time we've had this conversation, someone will have changed or many people will have changed the algorithms on a device. As soon as you speak a critique of AI, it is changing underneath you. Mm. So I, I don't see any future where we can project out what we have now and expect that it will be the same in 50 years' time. I guess if we were to continue on a path of sort of ignoring some of the, you know, um, issues that I'm raising around, you know, gender and um, also this relates to racial representations as well, then I think we would just be culturally held back, so socially held back in the sense that we wouldn't be allowing ourselves to really progress with things that, you know, like gender equality and, and equity because we'd be holding on to stereotypes from our past through technology and through design. Uh, and that would be that would be pretty sad. But, I mean, I don't think that's going to actually happen because I do see the industry changing, albeit sometimes very slowly, on these issues. And I think that, um, you know, pressure from users and, and, and pressure from the community will lead to more progressive design as we go forward. So how do you see it changing for the better? I think there's a number of things that need to change to, to make things better. One of the ones that often doesn't get talked about or thought about is um, representations of AI in sci-fi. And I think when you're in the industry and you're stuck in your own kind of thought patterns, and even for myself, you know, I've worked so long with digital voice assistants now, it's quite hard to think about and imagine alternative possibilities. Mm. But imagination is what we need. Mm. You know? And it's not just about, as I said, just the voice or, you know, imagining a different personality for something that people are going to engage with and it's going to be, you know, it's still going to be liked, but maybe not in the way that we currently expect. Mm. I think that is what I want to see change, but it's going to take a lot of different players. It's really interesting what you say about how often female or feminized AI is, when you drill down, it's about compliance. I will do what you want, whether that's sexually or in organizing your life. And I can't help but think about Westworld. Which, have mm, you seen that? Yes, that's another one of those inspirational films. <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't until you said it that I realised, you know, so many of the female AI characters in Westworld are there for sex. I don't remember a single male robot being used for sex. No, I mean, they're kind of enslaved in a different way. Yeah, they get but... shot and, and the women are had sex with constantly. Yes, then the women, the women are definitely there to serve. Right, and, and, and compliant. Yeah, that's right. And that's where I, I'm, I kind of... I'm taking saying that you know sci-fi has provided the cues for the type of femininity that we now expect from many of our devices. So what happens if we don't have enough regulations in place for biases in AI? Here's Mark Andreevich. So given that you don't think we have enough protections in place for biases in AI, imagine if we continue down the path we're on. Uh, what does our society's use of AI look like in 50 years, 100 years, if we don't do anything to correct these biases? Um, we're going to move more and more to automated um, processing of a growing range of decisions in our lives. And in, in some places, those are inevitable, right? Um, it's not possible to have a search engine like Google without an automated system, right? You, you can't have humans going through X billion websites and yeah. figuring out what the um, the best outcome is. 
Um, I think increasingly more and more of the decisions in our lives are going to look like that because we're generating more data. So it's going to be like, oh yeah, university admissions. Um, we've now created so much data about possible job candidates that, it, that it's not processable by humans. So let's, you know, because now we're able to get all of the social media data about people. This is my dystopian scenario, right? We're not doing this now, <laughs> uh, dear listeners. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, now we're able to get all the social media data. We're able to get really detailed data from the schools that are keeping track of every quiz they take, every test they take, um, their performance on all of these. All of this data now becomes too much data to process by humans. So the, I think one of the things that's really driving this it's not just the decision systems, it's the data collection systems. So once you create interactive media that make it possible to collect more and more information, then every decision potentially becomes an increasingly data-driven decision. And the data is too much for humans to handle. Mm -hmm. So we hand it off to automated processes to handle. So, so what's driving it in a way is this kind of data economy that we have even more than the automation one, if that makes sense, right? Uh, although the data collection is automated too, but more than the decision-making side. Once you have too much data, then you have to defer to the machines. And, the, and if we look at our current trajectory, those machines are going to be, um, the, the systems that operate them are going to be, according to our current trajectory, commercial, non-transparent, privately owned and controlled. So that's quite dystopian scenario mm. um, that uh, we get lost in a sea of data that private companies get to sort through in order to, to make decisions that shape our lives. It seems that without proper regulation, we will continue to see biases built into our AI systems. Next week, we will take a look at some of the ways AI can play a positive role and perhaps even help us prevent biases in our society as we move towards the future. Thanks to all our guests. We'll catch you next week on What Happens Next.